Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. One week ago, right about now, we were first learning details of what was going on in Israel. Since then, the show has been somewhat focused, obsessed with them. The country has, the world has. So on this show, I wanted to bring you, as we usually do, one from the vaults and one from the week. The one from the week will be a part of our conversation with Alana Newhouse of Tablet. This part didn't air. What did air was excellent. But we did get into questions of free speech and how far does one go in enforcing or punishing opinions that aren't just disturbing or different from one's own, but especially odious. So how to, uh, how to navigate the tension between principles, really. Uh, principles that you have for free speech and principles that one might have in terms of what constitutes uh, expressions so disturbing, so uh, caustic and destructive to something representing the uh, good working order of whatever you're talking about, something as big as society or something as local as a workplace. Anyway, Alana's one of the smartest. We'll get into that. And then, uh, since the show's been on almost 10 years, we've talked about past Israeli military operations. And in 2014, there was another incursion. And we were joined then by Dr. Dalia Gavrieli Nuri from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem to talk about what they were talking about, which was Operation Protective Edge. There was also Operation pillar of defense. Now it's Operation Iron Swords. But what we hear as the names of these operations as English speakers and what they hear are often different things with different resonances. So like a lot of just segments, it's focused on language, but I think it really gets at some uh, deep differences and interesting interpretations. So enjoy that interview as well. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, he got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, 
B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A reporter for a small Philadelphia newspaper was covering the 76ers was fired for tweeting out his objection to the 76ers kind of pro forma. We have sympathy for the victim of terrorists. So he was fired. And then the... Um, uh, Cornell University diversity and inclusion director uh, was taking to social media to side with Palestinians and donors have called for his firing. Square free speech to those firings. You know, here's what I guess I want to say. I know you didn't ask for this. I know. I know it's okay. You know, when we. To me, we have to understand power and we have to understand our role. I'm an employer. It's my right to say as an employer that I don't want certain people with certain views working for me. Mm -hmm. That's literally one of the freedoms that I have as an employer. The question becomes, are we digging up some random tweet often from three years ago when some kid was 17 or a random tweet saying, I don't agree with this and firing somebody over that. Are we taking a jackhammer to an ant? Mm -hmm. If we are, then it's not right. Right. But it's also, there's something just so, we've gotten so scrambled. We've really gotten so scrambled about free speech. I feel that, um, both sides here of this argument are, are are really confused. Yeah, the idea that the the left um, doesn't the left is filled with cancel culture. They are filled with mobs, um, and then the right wants to do the same thing, but the right basically doesn't control any cultural institution. So it right it, it correctly will say that we don't really have that much power, but then the right does control a whole a whole host of corporations. But that's not really freedom of speech. It's like the, the, here's a better way of thinking about it. I have a friend who called me this morning who said, I want to, uh, I believe that uh, Students for Justice of Palestine, that all of their chapters on college campuses should be shut down. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think that's a terrible idea. College campuses, their mandate is to be a landscape of ideas. If there are students that want to be part of that, why are you, who's not even on that campus, going and bigfooting on them? If they, if the students on the campus don't want it to be there, let them decide, right? Yeah. And yet, somehow, this person who saw themselves as, who sees themselves as a leftist, had come to believe that the answer when they saw something that was speech that they didn't like was to stamp it out. Yeah, I had a similar thought. I saw someone posting the top 10 most followed Instagram accounts and Cristiano Ronaldo, Leo Messi, Selena Gomez, Kylie Jenner, blah, 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 The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Someone calling them out for not posting anything about Israel. What are you waiting for? You always, um, you always give your opinion on all these other social issues. They're scared of picking sides. And my reaction was, but to me, that's compelled speech. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I object to this ethic of these, uh, 
pointless, meaningless statements from celebrities or people with big followings just because they think they have to. So in this case, you could you could call them, you could note the hypocrisy, but in this case, I wouldn't want them to tweet something they don't believe just because they feel they have to. I know, but we live in a world where this is how yeah. ideas are messaged. Yeah. And so the the lack of action when it comes to Jews is meaningful. And it is it's a message. It's not they're not simply not speaking. They are sending a message with their silence. And I do believe that it's okay if we are gonna live in a society where the currency is press releases. Well, that's the society we are living in right now. And Mm -hmm. we didn't get our press release. Now you and I may be like, I didn't need the press release last time and I don't need it this time. (laughs) But we also have to understand that we live in a society where a lot of people do need that. And they need that signaling from public figures because they don't have communities. They don't have, they don't have neighborhoods. They don't have religious leaders. They don't have civic leaders, they have no, none of the layers of context for their lives that people used to have. All we have is Instagram and The Rock. And it's like, <laughs> if all we have for that, for our, for signaling for where we should stand is The Rock, we need The Rock to say something, unfortunately. <laughs> your rock. So last thing I'll say is this, that exercise you talked about, write down how you feel. It's excellent, I think, because if you, if the individual chooses to change their mind because they've really thought about it or seen other evidence, data, opinion, sway, had their opinions swayed because they actively engage, that's one thing. But so often we change our opinion or don't even change our opinion, just are pushed off our opinion because we're distracted or we're annoyed or an erosion, an accumulation of, of images that become, you know, too too burdensome to handle um, intervenes. And if that's the reason that we no longer feel as committed, it's it's useful to go back to what we were thinking even two weeks ago and to see where we've traveled since then and why. And I think that, um, not to get too tinfoil hatty, but we do live in a world where Base where our brains are the, are are what people are fighting for, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Th- these phones are propaganda machines, and there there are a lot of people fighting for you to believe what they want you to believe, and understanding that your y- your brain should believe what you think, and not what somebody else puts in there is a very, very, very hard thing to protect these days. Um, but it also is going to be long-term the most important thing. It really is a kind of, I, I, I hate to, to be, this, this part I hate to be depressing about, but it does feel a little bit like a zombie apocalypse. Like there are a bunch of people who literally just sit and wait for their marching orders from their phone about what they're going to believe and post and, outra- and be outraged by and be upset about. And then there are a bunch of people who are like, wait, And then they go in their groups or their WhatsApp (laughs) friends and they're like, I don't know if I believe this. Yeah. They back channel silently to each other. We have to, those people, the people who say, I think I need to believe what's fundamental to me and not lose sight of that. Those are the people who are going to survive. 
So we're in the second week of Operation Protective Edge, which is the third iteration of a conflict in Gaza that has played out in similar forms. Before this operation, there was Operation Pillar of Defense, and before that, Operation Cast Lead. There are other smaller operation names interspersed like Returning Echo and Operation Brothers Keeper. And all the names, of course, are originally in Hebrew, and they would evoke different things to an Israeli than they do to an American. In fact, they'd even have different English translations depending on who you'd listen to. So right now we're going to talk to Dr. Dalia Gavrili Nuri, who teaches at Hadassah Academic College, where she's an expert in peace and war discourse. Hello, Dr. Gavrili Nuri. Thank you for being with us. Hello. Hello. How are you? So here in the uh, U.S. papers and U.S. media, Operation Protective Edge is what they call it. Is that in the English-speaking precincts of Israel what they've been calling it, or is there a different name for this operation? Okay, this is a very interesting point, because the, the Hebrew name for the current operation translates as strong cliff, a reference to nature. Like the names of 35%, around 35% of Israeli military campaigns since the state's establishment in 1948. Mm -hmm. And I think that using natural forces remove the responsibility of leaders. Nobody is responsible when you are sitting under, let's say, a volcano or when you are taking part in a military operation that's called strong cliffs. I think that uh, this is maybe a psychological process, this naming, this kind of naming, that helps the people that are involved in a conflict or in an operation to survive the situation The last operation of this type was, I believe, called in English in the American press, Operation Pillar of Defense. Would that have a different translation or a different connotation to someone Uh, who... uh, Absolutely. Yeah, tell me about that one. It's interesting that the English version is so different because in Hebrew, it's called um, Pillar of Cloud. Mm-hmm. Once again, it comes from nature. It also has a biblical association. So pillar of cloud, that would be from uh, Exodus, from the Torah, where a pillar of clouds guided the Israelites from Egypt and to the promised land. It would strike every Israeli as being so blatantly evocative of the biblical justifications for what they were doing. And the fact that this was translated into something other than pillar of cloud, but the fact that this was translated to pillar of defense for American ears, what does that tell you? I think that I understand why it's not translated with the biblical association to English. Because in Israel... We let's say that all secular and religious people alike learned for at least 10 years a uh, Bible. It's part of our mandatory curricula. Every Israeli, every Jewish Israeli knows or familiar with this meaning. And Operation Kesled was in December 2008, January 2009 during Hanukkah. Correct. There are so many associations with the, the Hebrew name the Hebrew name, I'll just say it briefly, that it re- reminds Jewish Israelis with the Maccabean uh, that uh, uh, fought the Greek, Antiochus. And it's reminders of a children's song. It's reminders of happiness and lights that are connected to Hanukkah. 
was it because the Hanukkah dreidel was cast out of lead in a way that bullets are cast out of lead? Was but was it a dreidel reference? The Hanukkah dreidel, the Savivon in Hebrew. Yeah. It is part of the song of the uh, children's song about Hanukkah. The poet of this song is Chaim Nachman Bialik, who is one of the most famous and uh, Zionist poets. So you see that all this association in the name Operation Castled. So in the U.S. in 1972, the Department of Defense issued guidelines about the names of operations because some there used to be just nonsense names or sometimes very aggressive names like Operation Werewolf. And there was uh, during the Vietnam War things like Operation Ripper and Killer. And uh, Department of Defense says that um, when naming operations, names should not express a degree of bellicosity inconsistent with traditional American ideals or current foreign policy or convey connotations offensive to good taste or derogatory to a particular group, sect, or creed. So even though Israel doesn't have to follow the Department of Defense recommendations, they do, because it's just good sense in rallying a citizenry and evoking either a history, a shared cultural history, or religious history, and getting people behind an operation. It seems like that's what's going on. Especially for a controversial war. However, I can't remember uh, such a consensus around a military operation. The name, I think uh, it's a good name. All right. Well, Dr. Dahlia Gavrielli Nuri is a professor who's also an expert at peace and war discourse. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's it for the show. Corey Wara produces it. Joel Patterson's the senior producer of The Gist. We'll talk to you Monday.